Amen. Good, good music this morning. Take your Bibles and be turning to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. I pray that you all survived our brush with the storm this week. Um, we uh, were very blessed that we didn't uh, have the kind of impact that some others have had down south. So be in prayer for them as we pray for their quick recovery and safety. Uh, our biggest challenge was picking up all the limbs out of the yard and cleaning up the mess that blew around. But uh, we're thankful for that and thankful for God's uh, grace. You know, it was it was God's plan when he made Florida. It has a little crook in it up north here. And uh, we just kind of sit in there and storm goes by. So thankful for God answering prayer there. Well, take your Bible to Hebrews 5. And I want us to think this morning for a few minutes in this passage about the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of Christ. One of the major themes in the book of Hebrews has to do with the priesthood, and it has to do specifically with the priesthood of Jesus Christ with relation to us in the church. It was introduced last week in chapter 4, and then the writer uh, to Hebrews takes up the, the point of the priesthood of Christ in full beginning in chapter 5. Now, the way the way he deals with this is, is uh, very clear and very set forth. In other words, what he did is he used the Old Testament high priest as an example of what Christ is in his priesthood. And let's just be reminded for a few moments what we learned last week about the priesthood in the Old Testament. You know, the priesthood began with Aaron when God called Israel out of Egypt and Moses and Aaron, and Aaron was the first high priest. And God established a, a, a priesthood, a Levitical system. Now the priest uh, had a, an important task. It was his responsibility, the high priest in particular, to make offerings for sin, to make offerings for the sin of the people. And we talked last week about that process. One day of year on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur on our calendar today, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make an offering for the sin of the people. Now, you remember the process was elaborate. The first thing that the, the priest had to do, the high priest, before he could go into the Holy of Holies, because no one was allowed in there any other time of the year because the presence of God was manifested in there. And if a person entered that holy place unprepared, they would die. There was a three-foot thick curtain of layers separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and the cherubims. And so nobody could go in there but once a year, and it was the high priest. And so to prepare himself, he would bathe, uh, be ceremonially clean. He would put on the right uh, garments, the priestly garments, the robes, and all the things. And then the very first thing he had to do was make an offering for himself. So he would make an offering for his sins, for the sins of his family, to prepare himself spiritually, confess his sins, make an offering uh, of an animal to cover those sins. And then they would bring the goats, and one goat was slain the blood of that goat he would take into the holy of holies and the mercy seat was in there and he would apply the blood and, and the blood would cover the sins of the people for the next year and then he would come out and they would lay their hands on the head of the second goat called the scapegoat and it was symbolic of all the sins of the people being put on the head of that goat the goat would be taken far away uh, left out in the wilderness and never come back and it was symbolic of of what would happen when jesus came that jesus would forgive our sin and that our sin would be removed as far as the east is from the west and never, never would we be responsible for our sin again. It would be forgiven in Christ. And so all of that in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus uh, and pointed to him coming. Now, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the high priest did in the Old Testament. He's the perfection of that, if you will. Jesus came. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He gave himself on the cross, shed his blood, paid the debt for our sin so that our sin could be paid for, removed as far as east is from the west, never laid to our account again. And I don't know about you, but that's good news, isn't it? That no matter what we've done in life, no matter, no matter we look back in our life at all the things that we've done and all the missteps and all the sins and we think, man, I should have, I should have listened better, I should have done better, God forgives all that. In Jesus Christ, it's all taken away. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Not only did Jesus come here and die for our sin and pay for our sin, but he arose again the third day. Made the way to, to have victory over death in the grave. And he ascended back to heaven and he sits today at the right hand of the Father and is our intercessor, our advocate with the Father. So Jesus is that perfect high priest. And I'll tell you one major difference between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament priests, Jesus made one sacrifice that's good for all times. The high priest had to go in every year because the blood of animals could never remove man's sin. But the blood of Jesus removed it. The blood of Jesus uh, took it away, blotted out the account. And so Jesus made one sacrifice for all times. So it is that discussion that the writer begins to have in chapter 5. And in verse 1, he begins with the function of the high priest. Look at verse 1 with me of Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. Well, as I just stated, the, the, very, the very primary, the most important function of the high priest was to make offerings, to make offerings for sin. In fact, it was that, that man, that high priest, that one person who was the link between man and God. He, he was the way. It was his function that made the way for men and women to have their sins covered by the blood of these animals, which again looked forward to the coming of Christ and his shed blood that would remove sin permanently. So this man's job was important. The reason that his job, his most important function was to offer offerings because our greatest need is to have our sin forgiven. You see, Adam, when Adam sinned all the way back in the beginning of creation, he passed down to us his sin nature. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by commission. Because of our nature, we're rebellious. Because of our nature, we're sinful. And so the high priest uh, had an important job of offering offerings for the penitent sinner. And let me, let me make this observation as well. In the Old Testament, there were, there were all these offerings for, for people who wanted to be forgiven of their sin. There were sin offerings and offense offerings, you know, and if I offended someone, I could give an offering. There were all these offerings, but they were only, they were only applicable and they were only uh, effective for those who had a penitent heart, for those who came with a, with a repentant nature in their heart saying, God, I want to be forgiven. Is it not the same today? Jesus died on the cross and made salvation available to everybody, but it's only effective for those who ask. It's only effective for those who come with a, a repentant heart and ask for God's forgiveness. Now notice he also said here in verse one, not only was his function to make sacrifices for sin, but he was taken from among men. That's important. The high priest was taken from among men, appointed by God. Why was he taken from among men? Because he would represent man. And to represent man, he needed to be like man. In other words, he needed to be like-minded, like-natured. He came. He was associated with people. He was associated with those whom he represented. 
The high priest was not detached. Even today in Christianity, as we share the gospel, we're not detached from lost people because we know what it's like to be lost, do we not? We know what it was like before we were saved. We know what sin can do. We know how sin can dominate our lives. We know how sin can entrap us and enslave us. We know how sin can destroy lives. So as God's ambassadors to a lost world, we fully associate with where lost people are. We know where they're at. And so it gives us a passion and a compassion for them to share. So likewise, the high priest, notice verses two through four. He come from among men, so he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest was called to have compassion on people. The word there is metropatheo. It's an interesting word. As far as I know, it's the only place in the New Testament where it's used. It doesn't, you know, we translate it compassion, but it has a deeper meaning than that. Yes, it's compassion, but it is a unique kind of compassion, which we really need to understand. It means that the high priest was to have compassion on people, not a weepy emotionalism or not some overbearing, hammering judgment, but a compassion that understands where they are, that understands what they need. And in understanding that is moved with compassion to minister to them as a high priest. One writer said this, it's not an undue harshness or weepy sentiment. Another writer went on to say this, and I quote, it describes the attitude which does not get angry at the faults of others and which does not condone them but which to the end of the day devotes itself to offering gentle yet powerful sympathy, which by its very patience directs people back to the right way. That's a good explanation. In other words, the high priest was to have compassion on people in a way that it moved them to repentance. Compassion on them in a way that, that urged them to come to Christ or to come to God and be saved. And later today, we use the same kind of compassion. I see this in the church sometimes. This word, this word is important for us as Christians. As the high priest was called to have compassion, so we are called to have compassion on lost people today. When we are unduly angry with lost people, we drive them away from Christ. We don't draw them to Christ. When we are unduly emotional and, and sentimental about people's sins and we, and we overlook it, then we fail to draw them to Christ. Our compassion today, like this word describes, is not to be overbearingly judgmental, for we all remember where we came from, right? And we never condone what God condemns. But at the same time, we have compassion to know that lost men and women need to be saved, and we have a compassion that compels them to come to Christ, that moves them to come to Christ. We love them, and we and we encourage them and we speak with them and we be patient with them. Sometimes I will see in a public forum someone who professes to stand for Christ. They name the name of Christ, they're a Christian. And they stand before lost people and they're ugly and they yell at them and they, and they condemn them and you're gonna burn in hell and they, and they are rough with them. That's not compassion. That's not compassion. You never saw Jesus do that. 
You never saw Jesus do that. Jesus was a personification of compassion. And yet he was steadfast on the truth. The high priest, what, I'm, what the writer's saying here, is the high priest was called to have this metropatheo, this compassion that stands for the truth, but yet compels people to come to Christ. A compassion for the lost, a compassion for those. We can make two applications of that. We'll never win lost people if we're ugly to them. We'll never win lost people if we have a judgmental attitude of greater than you. We'll never win them. We'll never win lost people if we condone their sin. If we say, oh, well, it's okay, you can't help yourself. No, we have to say the truth, but we say it with great love and compassion. We say to them, what you're doing is wrong because God said it's wrong. But God loves you and he doesn't want you to do wrong. He wants you to do right and he'll save you. That's how we approach lost people. Now you and I both know they're not gonna appreciate that. And they'll probably be the ones that get angry, but that's okay. And let me make one more application to this kind of compassion. What about among the circle of Christianity? Amen. Do you know that Christians fail all the time? You say, yeah, I've been in that group, okay? You can raise your hand, right? We fail. We're not perfect in this life. Now we, we are to pursue perfection. We're to pursue righteousness and holiness and we are to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to be holy and righteous and do all the things we're supposed to do, but we fail every day. It does the church no good when we have a lack of compassion for believers who fall or stumble. Again, we don't condone their failures. We don't say, well, it's okay that you had an affair. No, it's not okay. However, it's not the end of life. God forgives. You need to come back in, confess your sin, and get right with God. And when a person's right with God, guess what? They're right with the rest of us. You follow me? We don't walk around with a judgmental greater than thou attitude. So this word compassion, we could really spend the rest of the morning talking about, but that was an important function of the high priest. You say, why was it so important? Because listen to me, he was the one man in all Israel when a person was down and out and overcome by life and overcome by their sin where they could go get relation to God. He was the one man they could go to and give an offering and say, would you go before God for me because I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and here's my offering. He was the guy and all those who made the offerings. Isn't that what Jesus does for us today? When a person comes to us and they say, man, my life's broken and sin has wrecked everything. What do we say to them? Well, I know just who you need to talk to. Okay? You need to talk to Jesus. You need to talk to him. Why? Because he's our great high priest. And he has compassion for us. And so this high priest job was a big deal. You know, it was a big deal. Because they represented man to God and God to man. Now, notice that it said here he had to make an offering for himself. Well, we already know that. We said part of the process of going in the Holy Holies, verse 3, because of this he is required for, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifice for sins. Uh, he had to, he had to uh, deal with his own sin before he could go in and represent the people. Hey, I got good news for you. Jesus never had to do that. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. The only sin Jesus ever dealt with was yours and mine. He became sin for us, but he didn't have to deal with his own sin. Why? Because he was the perfect sinless lamb of God. And his blood was sinless, which allowed him to pay for all of our sin. But the high priest was had no such perfection because he was a man. He had to deal with his own sins. 
And then notice that he was appointed by God. Now the high priests in Israel, unlike it got messed up during the first century in the Romans, they weren't voted in office. In other words, they didn't have a popularity vote and say, well, who wants to be high priest next? No, God chose the high priest. God chose Aaron and it went down through his lineage and the high priest was to be of the lineage of Aaron. God appointed the high priest. God appointed the person that would represent the people to him. God appointed them, verse four, and no man takes the honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Can I, can I say this about the church today? It very much is the same about pastors and churches today. Being a pastor is not a profession that you wake up one day and go, well, you know what, I think I'm just gonna be a, I'm gonna be a religious leader and I'm gonna be a pastor. Men who do that are not, are not what God intends to be pastors in a church. Being a pastor in a church, being a pastor in the ministry or being called into ministry is all of God, it's not about us. In fact, I will say this, if you think you wanna be a pastor of a church and if you can do anything else in life, you ought to do it, then do that. Now, if you can't do anything else in life and God won't leave you alone, well then God's calling you to be a pastor. I can tell you. I try to do a lot of other things and God just runs faster than you do, I can tell you that. Listen, God said, I picked the high priest. In the church today, God calls men to be pastors of churches. God calls men and women to serve in places in the church. God does that. Okay, it isn't, it isn't a vocation. Neither was being the high priest a vocation. It was God's call in his life. The whole Levitical system was God's plan for Israel to be able to approach him. All a type of Jesus Christ. Now, the application of this Levitical priesthood, then he begins to make with Jesus in five, verses five and six, but he does it this way, does it in reverse order. Look at verse five. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he begins in reverse order with what he just said about the high priest in Israel to speak of Jesus. And the first thing he said is, Somebody appointed Jesus to come be our great high priest. Who was that somebody? God the Father. God the Father said to God the Son, I need you to go, uh, part of the plan, take on humanity, be born of the Virgin Mary, go to the cross, pay for the sin of the world. And God the Father's promise to him was, I'll raise you up on the third day and I'll bring you back and I'll exalt you. And Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, Jesus was willing to go. Don't misunderstand me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God in the Trinity and the, and the Godhead, and they're all in on the plan. You get me? They've been in and on the plan forever, for all of eternity. But yet Jesus was still willing to come. As part of the plan, he was willing to come, to lay aside his glory, as Paul said, to take on flesh and tabernacle here for a season. Jesus was willing to do that, but he came because he was sent. The Father gave His only begotten Son. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to come. He gave Him. He didn't have to. He gave Him. Jesus didn't have to come. You understand that? He's God. He could have said, no, we're not doing that. No, but He was willing. He came. He was sent. And He was sent by one. He was sent by the Father. He was appointed, if you will, by the Father, and He was willing to come. Now, He used two Old Testament quotes to prove this point. One was from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
God the Father declared publicly two times in the ministry of Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. One was at his baptism when John the Baptist baptized him. The other was at the transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration. God spoke from heaven twice and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the second time he said to Peter, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, Peter shut up, listen to what he has to say. God declared twice from heaven, this is my son. So he was sent. And then the second quote was from Psalm 110 verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I'm gonna reserve this morning from saying a lot about Melchizedek because the writer's gonna get into that later and we'll deal with it. But what did he mean when you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Jesus was sent to inaugurate a new office, if you will. In the Old Testament, the king, the monarchy, and the priesthood were separate. The high priest couldn't be the king, and the monarchy, the king, couldn't be the priest. They weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed to operate the same office. In fact, we have examples in the Old Testament of men trying to intrude in an office where they had no business being, and the judgment from God was always swift. Korah was one of them, Saul was another. So you have these men, Uzziah was one. These men tried to intrude who were monarchs into the priesthood, or the priesthood, tried to, someone tried to assume a role as a priest or, or a prophet that they weren't given. And God judged that stringently. But in Jesus, we have something new and we have something different. Jesus is not only our great high priest in that he made the way for us to be restored to the Father, but he's also King of kings and Lord of lords. So in Jesus, we have the, watch, the combining of both functions into one person. In Jesus, we have both the king and our high priest. That's why he says after order of Melchizedek. Now, a preview to Melchizedek. You find him back in Genesis chapter 14, and as fast as he comes on the page of Scripture, he disappears, and you don't see him anymore. Probably more stuff written about him on three or four verses than you find of any other person, and how they get that much out of three or four verses, I have no idea. But here's the deal. Melchizedek met Abraham when he came back from, from destroying Keterleomer and the kings that had come over and captured his nephew, and you can read that in Genesis 13 14. Abraham comes back with all the stuff. All the stuff the kings took, he reconquered it and brought it all back, delivered all the people back to the kings there around Sodom and Gomorrah in the area. And this guy, Melchizedek, suddenly appears out of nowhere. He's like, you know, boom, here's Melchizedek. Says some interesting things about him. One, he's a king. And number two, listen to this, he's a priest of the Most High God. Man, does that open up some thought? Because he ain't Jewish. The guy who's going to start Jewish nations is standing in front of him, Abraham. So Melchizedek's not Jewish, yet he's a priest of the Most High God, and he's a king. And Abraham, by the way, gave tithes to him. And the lesser always gives tithes to the greater. Okay? So what this means is Jesus, his office, his high priesthood, his kingship is after the order of Melchizedek, meaning... He'll be a king and priest forever. 
So we have a high priest who's our great high priest who will be the king, who is the king, who will be the king forever and our high priest forever. That's the picture that the writer is painting for these Hebrews. Now, why is he painting that picture for them? Why? Because they're under great pressure to go back to Judaism. And what's he saying to them? You have nothing to go back to. The thing that you're looking for is in Jesus. The fulfillment of all that the Old Testament high priest and all the Levitical system pointed to, it's the one you've believed in. It's Jesus. He's the king. And the Jews certainly would have understand he's the son of David, and that he's going to sit on the throne forever, because was that not the promise to David? Sure it was. Someone, your descendant, will sit on your throne forever. So, high priest and king. Now, back to the compassion again. Look at verses 7 and 8. Speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his uh, godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Because of his suffering, because Jesus came here, took on flesh, suffered as we do in life, endured what we do in life, he became the perfect representative for us. Remember, the high priest was taken from among men. Why? Because he associates with men. So Jesus came, took on humanity, 100% God, 100% man at the same time in his incarnation, endured all that we endure in life, yet without sin, and went to the cross. He is our perfect representative. Metropatheo, he is perfectly qualified to give us the kind of compassion that we need because of his experience in humanity. In fact, the writer said this back in chapter four. Remember this from last week? Chapter four, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus did that, because he came, he has perfect compassion for us and he can represent us and he knows what we go through. Then notice what he says in verses nine and 10. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God a high, as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. When we see that phrase, having been perfected, that might give us a minute of pause. We go, oh, wait a minute, how do you mean Jesus could be perfected in anything? Well, the word is teleos, which in the Greek means a thing that did its function is perfect. Meaning a thing that did what it was intended to do is perfect. Jesus did exactly what he intended to do. Jesus came here to experience humanity, to live as we live, to walk in our shoes, to take on flesh. He did that. And not only did he do it, but he did it perfectly. He did it sinlessly. When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? The last thing he said, it's finished. It's finished. He did it, perfected, if you will. He learned and was perfected in representing us because he came here, took on flesh, died on the cross, perfectly prepared to be our high priest, perfectly prepared to be our advocate as he sits next to the Father. And here's how that could go. When I pray and I say, oh God, 
this thing is, is tough for me, or this sin, or this thing is hard in life, or God, I'm overcome by this situation. Jesus is my intercessor. And you know what Jesus can say as he sits next to the Father? He can say, Father, I know how he feels. I've been there. I know what it's like to be faced with that difficulty in life. I know what it's like to be overcome. I know what it's like to feel fear. I know what it's like to feel disappointment. I know what it's like to be tired and overcome. Jesus can say, I know what that feels like. And he can perfectly intercede for me with the Father. He knows exactly what I need. He knows what you need. He knows what you need in your life. He knows what will overcome you. And you know the best part? God created us. And God knows your personality. God knows your walk in life. He knows your station in life. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows your fears. He knows all those things. And yet he's perfectly qualified to meet us where we are. That's our great high priest. And that's what he's saying. Perfected and become the author of eternal salvation. I like that. What does it mean to be the author of something? It means you started it. You know what Jesus started? Salvation. Jesus started a way for you to be saved. Jesus authored it. He came here, died, made the way. He's the author of our salvation. What, what kind of salvation? Eternal salvation. Man, I'm thankful for that. There's one thing I really am thankful for. I'm thankful I can be forgiven. And I'm thankful that when I'm forgiven, it's forever. It never gets brought up again. Right? I don't want to ever revisit that stuff again. When Jesus forgives it, I want it gone. And he does that. He forgives. And it's forever forgiven. Now, the last thing I want to show you real quick this morning is he makes an appeal based on, really, that's an introductory uh, section to the priesthood of Christ. He makes an appeal in verses 11 to 14 and a warning. Notice what he says. Speaking of Jesus, of whom we have much to say. He said, I have a lot to say to you about Jesus. And hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For both, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness and he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Wow, what's he saying there? Well, what he's saying is this, the gospel is so simple a child can understand it. A child can hear the gospel and be saved. The gospel and the truths of what God has done for us and what Jesus did are so clear that anybody can grasp it. Yet, when you get saved, that's just the beginning, isn't it? When you get saved and you begin to delve into the depths of what Jesus Christ did for us and who he is and the plan of salvation and all that God has in store for humanity is so deep, you can't even see the top. And so what's our task when we get saved? When we get saved and you dig in, that's what it means. When you get saved, you begin to grow. When you get saved, you, you read the Bible and you begin to study and you listen to sermons and you read behind godly men and women and you begin to read and you begin to study and you begin to pray and you grow spiritually. And you get a good grasp 
of what happened when you got saved and all the things that you didn't understand in depth when you got saved, you just believed Jesus because you knew you were lost and you wanted to be saved and you put your faith in Jesus and you were born again. Oh, but there's so much more to understand and know than just being born again, isn't there? There's so much more to know and understand about the plan of God and about who he is and all that he's revealed in the Bible. And you read it and, and the Holy Spirit begins to connect the dots. And what happens? Spiritually, you begin to grow. And next thing you know, somebody says something to you about the Bible and you go, hey, I know that. Wait a minute. I read that. I read that last week. And you know what? Here's what the Bible says. Or somebody, somebody lost and somebody in society makes a statement and, and the Holy Spirit goes off in your brain. You go, no, that can't be right because it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. What is that? That is a growth process. That's spiritual growth. And then when someone like the writer to the Hebrews comes along and begins to write difficult things and says, oh, uh, Jesus is, is raised up in an office after the order of Melchizedek. Then if you've grown in your faith in it, you know what that is. And you go, oh, wait a minute, I know that guy. I read about him back there in the book of Genesis somewhere. I'm not sure where it was, but I remember reading about that guy and, and I read a commentary about him. And so now I really understand what God's saying about Jesus and about Melchizedek and the king priest. That's spiritual growth and that's spiritual maturity. You know what the writer's saying to these Christians? You guys ain't out of the starting block yet. You, you, you know, the gun went off, you guys saved, and you still, you still down there and you're, you didn't even start running yet. In other words, you've not grown. You are, you are babes in Christ. You're still wearing diapers and we're still feeding you on milk and we're still talking to you about the fundamentals of your faith, which is okay because we want babes to grow. So what do we do with babes? We feed them bottles. But we don't intend to do that forever, right? We feed them bottles and in six months, man, they're throwing beans around the kitchen. You know, and food. Why? Because they're growing. And we, and, we feed them, and we feed them food. And sooner or later, you got to get the meat and potatoes. And once you eat meat and potatoes, you don't own milk no more, right? Man, once you, know, you, once you get big enough to go to Longhorns, you're set. You know? <laughs> Spiritually, it's the same way, isn't it? You, you, you start on the milk of the Word, you get saved, and then you start reading the Bible. And you start, and, you, and again, you read it, and maybe the first time you read it, I know this was for me. I got saved when I was 11. Before I got out of high school, I read the Bible from front to back. Couldn't pronounce half the words, especially in the Old Testament. I, I used to think to myself, who wrote these? Who names their kid that? I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, you know, you can't, you just, you know, half the time when I was in high school, I was like, well, and him, and he, and him, and him, and I didn't know, I couldn't say those names. Still, I can't say half of them. You've know, you got to think about it and look at them. And my point is this. Over time, you begin to grow. Now, here's the danger of not growing. You ready? On a serious note, here's the danger of not growing. Spiritual growth is directly connected to discernment. Listen to me. Discernment between right and wrong, discernment between truth and error, is directly connected to spiritual growth. A person who does not grow spiritually at some pace, and get me now, some people grow really fast, some grow slower, but every Christian should be growing at some pace. If a Christian's not growing, they are susceptible to being deceived. If a Christian's not growing, they're susceptible to being led astray by error, false teaching, false prophets, you name it. Satan will use whatever he can get to get you off track. The way you know the truth 
And the way you discern the truth is through God's word. The technical term is called a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview means you are growing spiritually and when you look at life and when we look at life, we see it through the lens of God's word. And we measure everything that we see in life through God's word. And when the world says, oh, this is the way it should be, and we look at it through God's word, and we go, no, that's not the way it should be. And the reason it shouldn't be that way is because the Bible says A, B, C, D. And the reason you can do that is because you have grown spiritually. What the writer is saying to these Christians is, I got a lot to say to you about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I got a lot to say to you about Jesus and who you believed in and what he's going to do for you and, and him being a priest after order of Melchizedek. He says, I got a lot to say to you about that. But it's tough for me to teach you because you're still wearing diapers. And it's tough for you to understand that stuff because you never got far past just being saved. So I would close this morning with saying this. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. The Old Testament high priest was a type, and Jesus fulfilled it. He fulfilled it perfectly. I hope you see by now, through our study of Hebrews, even to chapter 5, that the entire Levitical system that God gave Israel was a picture of what he was going to do through Jesus. A picture of forgiveness of sin. A picture of a representative. A picture of one who can reconnect us to him. Because here's the truth. Our sin separates us from God. Lost men and women are separated from God because of their sin. Christians who live in habitual sin, Christians who won't confess their sin, they don't lose their relationship to God, but it hinders their fellowship. Sin always separates us from God. Sin always causes problems between man and God because God's holy. Jesus, just like in the Old Testament, listen to me, the high priest was the one man in Israel who could make the offering and restore us to God. Guess what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Jesus is the one person who can restore a lost man or woman to a relationship with God who created them. So here's what you need to decide today. If you're lost and you're watching online or you're here today and you're lost, you need to pray and ask Jesus to save you. You need to come to him and be forgiven of your sin. And I implore you to do that. Last week, I shared the gospel with a young man sitting by my pool. He said to me, I need to get closer to God. I said, you're in luck. I know just the person that can do that. <laughs> and I told him about Jesus, and he prayed and asked Jesus to forgive his sin and to save him. That's what you need. That's what you need. If you are saved, and you take the Bible ho-hum, and you read it sometimes, and you don't read it sometimes, and when you get ready to come to church, you go, wonder where I left my Bible, wonder if it's on the on my phone, would you please read this thing? Would you do that? Would you listen to sermons? Would you, would, you, would you put some effort? Hey, would you put as much effort in to growing in your faith as you do learning who plays football? Or what baseball teams in the playoffs? Or hockey? Or whatever you're, you know, whatever. Would you at least put as much effort in to following Jesus as you do following worldly stuff, you will be amazed 
what will happen in your way of thinking in your life if you'll get this thing, if you'll get serious about this. Would you do that? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we have a great high priest, your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come and take on human flesh and be like us so you could represent us, yet without sin. Thank you, Lord, that when we pray, like right now, you can associate with everything that we struggle with in life. Lord, you know. You know what it feels like to be afraid. You know what it feels like to be discouraged. Lord, you know what it feels like to be uh, forsaken. You know what it feels like to face temptation and trials and tribulation. Yet, Lord, you were victorious. You walked this life sinlessly. So, Lord, we come today asking for your help. Lord, be our advocate in times of failure and weakness. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to be faithful. Fill us with your power. God, today there may be someone here who's lost, a man or a woman, a young person, boy or girl. And Lord, they, they need to be saved today. They need their sin forgiven. And Lord, I pray right now, if they're watching online or they're in this room, that God, they would ask for your forgiveness. God, they would come to you with a repentant heart and ask you to save them. Bless the invitation, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. You come on the first verse. If God's dealing with your heart, you come on the first verse.